Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think there's probably no scarier words than, David, you have cancer. Everything changes in that moment. Everything you suddenly realize you're no longer in control of your life. Cancer takes over, and it has control. David Mitchell, now 73, was diagnosed with cancer back in 2010. Multiple myeloma is an incurable blood cancer that attacks your bones. It also can attack your kidneys. Fortunately, it can be treated. But David's doctors don't know how long the drugs will continue to work and they don't come cheap. The four-drug combination they have me on carries a list price of more than $960,000 a year. David lives in Maryland and is one of 65 million Americans covered under Medicare, which is a health insurance program provided by the federal government. But the scheme only helps with part of his drug bills. I'm spending more than $18,000 a year out of pocket for oral drugs under Medicare. So, David launched a consumer lobbying group called Patients for Affordable Drugs to lobby for lower prices. America's government has taken notice. President Biden's signature legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act, will limit what patients like David are forced to spend on the medicines they need to stay alive. When the law takes full effect in 2025, that will drop to a maximum of $2,000. So that's a huge savings, $16,000 plus. It will achieve that in part by allowing the government, for the first time, to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies over drug prices. But that has not gone over well with the drug companies. Johnson & Johnson suing the Biden administration over Medicare's new powers to slash drug prices under the Inflation Reduction Act. The company joins Merck and Bristol-Myers Squibb in arguing that the Medicare negotiations violate the First and Fifth Amendments, saying that its suit aims to stop the innovation-damaging congressional overreach. For his part, David isn't worried about the bill stifling the development of new drugs. It's just not true. It's a wild exaggeration. The fact of the matter is, we are the only wealthy country that doesn't negotiate over drug prices. And those companies make a profit in every single one of those other countries. So, how severe will the side effects be from the Biden administration's bold new law? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. In London, I'm Tom Lee Devlin. In Singapore, I'm Mike Bird. And in today's show, why America's new drug pricing rules are proving a hard pill to swallow. First, we discuss why what happens in America's drug market matters for the rest of the world as well. 
it's a very common lament that Americans essentially subsidize drug development for the rest of the world. And to some extent, that's not very far from the truth. Then, we speak to an advisor to Joe Biden about what the president is hoping to achieve. A main objective of the Inflation Reduction Act is to find a way to begin to constrain high drug costs. Finally, we speak to a pharmaceutical giant to find out why drug companies are unhappy about the new rules. The Inflation Reduction Act has a number of core elements that we think creates some very serious disincentives to development of medicines in cancers. Hi, Mike. Hey, Tom. So it's the first of a few weeks without Alice while she's off on her belated honeymoon in Japan. Which is frustrating, not just because we miss her, obviously, but um, also because she could have explained the US healthcare system to us. If I'm completely honest, I find the entire thing a little bit perplexing. Well, you're not alone there, Mike, and things in America's Byzantine healthcare system are changing again as the Biden administration introduces a new law that it hopes will make healthcare in the country cheaper, although unfortunately not any less complex. And this is yet another piece to the Inflation Reduction Act jigsaw, which really is a sort of monster piece of legislation. That's right. It's focused in particular on Medicare, which is the part of the system that caters mostly to people aged over 65. And it makes two major changes. The first reduces the amount that Medicare patients contribute to the cost of their drugs through what's called the copay system. And then the second is to lower the overall price of those drugs for the government by allowing it to negotiate with drug makers over prices once drugs have been available for more than a certain period of time. What baffles me a little bit is that it wasn't able to negotiate with them in the first place. Yeah, this whole thing is actually very confusing. But fortunately, our new business correspondent, Shilash Chitness, used to deal a lot with American healthcare providers in his old job as a health tech entrepreneur. So I'm going to bring him in here to explain. Shailesh, thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. Shailesh, my first question for you is, why does all this matter, even for folks like us that are not based in America? I think it's important to understand what happens in America, because whatever happens there impacts the type of drugs produced everywhere. Let me explain. So if you think about it, the U.S. is the world's largest pharmaceutical market with around 40 or 45 percent of global sales, which was roughly around, I think, 650 billion in 2022. So a huge number. Now, if you look at the profits, their share, which is America's share in pharma profits, is even higher. It's roughly 65 percent of worldwide profits. So immediately you start to see that whatever happens in the U.S., has a direct impact on the budgets as well as the profitability of a lot of the pharmaceutical companies. In fact, among advocates for affordable drug prices, it's a very common lament that Americans essentially subsidize drug development for the rest of the world. And to some extent, that's not very far from the truth. So I think a lot of people should be focused on what's happening in the US because it will directly impact them at some point or the other. So the American drug market is huge, but it also has a somewhat unusual system for covering the cost of those drugs. Can you explain that for us? The U.S. is unlike any other developed economy in the world in the way its health system is structured. 
it's actually a mesh of private as well as state-backed healthcare. So for a majority of the people, around 55% of the population, they have private health insurance as their primary health coverage. Next, you also have state-backed health insurance, which is primarily Medicare and Medicaid. Medicare is a program which is for populations that are 65 and over, and that covers roughly 15% of the population. And then you also have another program called Medicaid, which is primarily an insurance program for people below certain income levels, and it covers around 20% of the population. So there are these three broad buckets, which is private health insurance, Medicare, and Medicaid, which make up the health coverage in the U.S., And we're talking about Medicare specifically today because a major component of the Inflation Reduction Act was a new mechanism to reduce the prices that the US government paid through Medicare for various drugs. Could you give us a bit of background as to how price negotiations with Medicare worked in the past? Sure. So before the IRA, the Medicare was essentially barred from negotiating directly with drug companies. And the specific portion that we are talking about, you might hear reference to a term called Part D. Part D is essentially the prescription drug program of Medicare. And even though Medicare enrollees are around 15% of the overall population, the fact that Medicare covers 65 and over means that its share of overall drug purchase is much higher. Roughly around a third of all prescription drugs sold in the US make their way through Medicare Part D. And so before the IRA was passed, drug companies feared that the U.S. government would use its huge buying power to essentially browbeat drug companies to accepting a lower price. And that's the reason in the law itself, they were barred from negotiating directly with drug companies. And so how will that change going forward under the IRA? So under the IRA, there are provisions now for Medicare to actually start negotiating with drug companies. Now, to be very clear, this is going to be a very phased approach. The program itself starts out in 2026, though I think last month they announced the list of first 10 drugs that are eligible to be subject for this price negotiation. And then subsequent to every year, so 2027, 2028, and so on, they would add 10 or 15 drugs every year, such that over a period of time, a large proportion of Medicare spending would get covered by drugs that are subject to negotiation. Now, when you think about this law, there are a few different aspects that are worth noting. The first is there's a period of price exclusivity that you may hear. And what this means is anytime a drug gets launched, it has a certain window during which the drug company can set prices as it wants. And once the window ends, that's when they'll sit down with Medicare's negotiators and kind of hammer out a price. Now, what is interesting in the IRA is there is a distinction between what are called small molecules, which are the kind of pills that you pop in your mouth and line most medicine cabinets, and then large molecules. These are your biologics that you typically would go into a hospital or a clinic to get infused. So Medicare draws a distinction between small molecules and large molecules by giving small molecules a nine-year window after which they're subject to negotiation whereas biologics or large molecules get a 13-year window. Now, this four-year gap between the small and the large molecule is actually quite significant because for a lot of drugs, the first few years after they launch a drug, it's kind of a slow ramp in terms of revenue. 
And it's really in the back half of the drug's life cycle that you really start to make a lot of money and then start to recoup a lot of costs that you've put in during the drug's R&D. So that four-year window between a small molecule and a large molecule, that's quite significant. And that has been one of the more contentious issues of this law. And you talked about the contentiousness of the law there. What has the reaction of the drug companies been to all this? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, the pharma industry, not the quietest in the best of times, haven't been very happy with this. There are at least five different lawsuits that are making their way through the courts, challenging the validity of the IRA in terms of setting prices, as well as some of the provisions around the IRA being unconstitutional. I've also heard a lot of industry executives gripe that the IRA, which is the Inflation Reduction Act, they actually call it the Innovation Reduction Act because they believe that the provisions of the law are essentially going to change the kind of drugs that get developed. Small molecule drugs now have kind of a much harder climb in which to recoup the cost because they have only nine years. And so a lot of drug manufacturers are going to start to favor large molecule drugs because you have a longer window. That's kind of one reason. The second is a provision in the IRA where the negotiation itself, it's not really a negotiation because the penalties for companies that don't comply with the negotiation process are quite severe. So to give you an example, if a drug company is not happy with the price that the government has suggested, they have two options. The first is they face an excise tax which is equivalent to between 65 to 95% of that product sale in US. So even if you don't sell it in Medicare, you're selling it outside, you would have to pay a penalty equivalent to 65 to 95% of the product sales. So that's number one. Or if you don't want to pay that tax, as a manufacturer, you have to withdraw all your other drugs from the Medicare program altogether. So you can see it's a pretty harsh penalty. And basically, no manufacturer would want to withdraw their medicines from Medicare altogether. And the tax is quite harsh itself. So in essence, they don't have a choice other than accept the price that has been set by the government. Shailesh, this has been really helpful. Absolutely. Now we've got the basics covered. I want to better understand what the US government is hoping to achieve by changing the law. To do that, I spoke to Trisha Newman. She works for the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a healthcare think tank, and also serves as a senior advisor to President Biden. Trisha, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. My pleasure. So, Trisha, historically, Medicare was unable to negotiate with drug companies over prices. In, in contrast with the NHS here in Britain and other public healthcare systems around the world. So, why was the system designed that way in America? For many years, Medicare didn't even cover prescription drugs. Medicare came along in 1965, and it didn't have a drug benefit. But then, at long last. In 2003, the Congress passed a Medicare drug benefit as part of a law called the Medicare Modernization Act. In that law, there was a little phrase, which is called the non-interference clause, which essentially says, hey, government, you cannot get involved in negotiating drug prices. And that was put in at the behest of the pharmaceutical industry because there was concern at the time that the government would be heavy-handed and establish prices. And that was the law of the land for decades until the Inflation Reduction Act passed. 
Now the government is introducing a new mechanism to allow Medicare to haggle over prices for a selection of drugs. What is the government hoping to achieve with that? With giving the government authority to negotiate drug prices, Congress really had two goals. The main goal was to introduce a new way to limit government spending, Medicare spending, taxpayer dollars on prescription drugs. After a period of relatively slow growth, the Congressional Budget Office was projecting faster increases in Medicare spending on prescription drugs. And a main objective of the Inflation Reduction Act is to find a way to begin to constrain high drug costs. A second and related goal was to help people with the cost of their prescriptions. Even with a Medicare benefit in place, people who were taking very expensive drugs were paying a lot for them, are paying a lot for them. I have a close family member who had a Medicare plan, and she was paying over $10,000 for a drug to treat her cancer. So members of Congress were hearing from their constituents who were saying, hey, thank you for that drug benefit, but we need more help. And our polling shows that the public is very concerned still about high drug costs and actually supportive of giving the government more authority to do almost anything, including negotiate drug prices. And in our public polling, that's true among Democrats and Republicans. Support from polls might be high, but I think it's fair to say that the pharmaceutical companies have taken exception to these new measures and there are lawsuits currently underway. What would you say to those who argue that by lowering prices, this new mechanism could crimp innovation in drug development? First of all, I understand that concern. I think we all are looking for breakthrough drugs that will cure cancer, eradicate Alzheimer's disease. We're looking for the innovations that will be game changers for all of us. And I have heard the concerns of the industry and I've seen the lawsuits and it's not a surprise. They've had longstanding concerns about giving the government authority to negotiate prices What the Congressional Budget Office said is, when we look at this, we think this will result in less than 1% fewer drugs coming to market over three decades. I think 13 drugs altogether. And what they didn't say, and it's important, is whether the drugs that aren't going to come to market are the breakthrough drugs that we all want to see, or are they me-too drugs, which we also know get approved by FDA and come to market and sort of add to the mix, but may not add meaningfully to the healthcare of the public. So I hear the concern, but I also sort of on balance don't know that there's evidence yet to suggest that this will have the harmful effects that the industry suggests. One particularly controversial part of the new mechanism is the fact that drug makers who walk away from negotiations will either have to pay significant penalties or pull out of being a supplier to Medicare altogether. Is that a bit harsh? You know, some might say that's harsh. Some say it's like negotiation with a big stick. It's definitely aimed to compel, to give strong incentives for drug companies to come to the negotiating table. You know, hospitals have the option also of participating in Medicare or not. Physicians have the choice of participating in Medicare or not. In the case of physicians, we've just looked at this, and 
just 1% of all doctors in this country have elected to not participate in the Medicare program. So yes, it's true. It's a strong incentive because Medicare has 65 million people. It's a big market. It would obviously be a big loss to a hospital or a physician group or a drug company to not be able to sell to people on Medicare, but it is the way the Medicare program works. And if you think about the alternative, which is not letting Medicare have any constraints on what it spends on prescription drugs, that's kind of scary for taxpayers, for premiums, for the federal budget, because it means that the government really has no way to limit its expenditures. So remember, these are drugs where there are no real competitors. So this is focusing on where the marketplace isn't working so well because there's not so much competition. And it starts pretty gradually and phases up over the years. So yes, there are strong incentives to negotiate for sure. And I think we'll see really soon whether the drug companies are going to sign the agreement with the federal government and engage in this negotiation process. Of course, that assumes that nothing gets stopped first by the courts. Trisha, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So, Mike, I do find this decision that was made a couple of decades ago to essentially prevent the government from negotiating on prices, frankly, very odd. This is not something that other governments around the world have chosen to do, and it's not something that the US government would do really in any other area of procurement, even if you're talking about something like defense expenditure, where there are very high risks of development costs overrunning. Uh, The most common model there is a cost plus mechanism where the government basically agrees to reimburse the contractor for their expenses and pay a margin around usually 10% on top of that. So whether or not you think the new mechanism is a bit too harsh on drug makers, the old regime seems just incredibly generous to me. The really interesting thing to me in the vast majority of other medical markets, the end consumer is kept at a real distance. There's no sort of TV advert style, ask your doctor about this medicine. So it's really quite profoundly distinct to almost every other sort of product where there's a much more recognizable international market. And I think that's part of the dynamic here. The fact that for political reasons, you need some level of equality or at least similarity between people with private insurance and people receiving Medicare. You don't want to have gargantuan gaps between those two sides. I don't think most US politicians want to go into an election and have their constituents asking why their state-assisted medical insurance can only give them drugs that privately insured people were offered decades ago. There's not really that much equivalent to that in a lot of the rest of the world, maybe particularly in the UK. So yeah, I find all of this very, very interesting. Yeah, that whole phenomenon of TV ads pitching new medications that you should go and talk to your doctor about just feels like a very American phenomenon. It's not something I've come across really anywhere else in the world. Speaking of ads, before we hear what's coming up after the break, we wanted to remind you about some important changes here at The Economist. From next month, if you want to catch all of our episodes of Money Talks, you will need to be a subscriber. That means if you're already an Economist subscriber, thank you, you don't have to do anything for now, you'll be able to access all of our podcasts with your login. But... 
If you're not a print or digital subscriber, you'll need a subscription to Economist Podcast Plus. That will give you access to Money Talks, as well as our other weekly shows like our science and tech podcast, Babbage, and Checks and Balance, our show about American politics. And it'll also give you access to two brand new shows that we're really excited about. Boss Class, which will share the secrets of how not to be a terrible manager, something your own boss will almost certainly be very excited to hear you're listening to. And The Weekend Intelligence, which will feature the very best of The Economist's storytelling every Saturday. But again, to be able to listen to all of that, you'll have to be a subscriber. And you can sign up for Economist Podcast Plus for just £2, dollars or euros a month with a special offer. But that's only available if you subscribe before the 17th of October. To get that special offer, visit economist.com forward slash podcasts plus. That's P-L-U-S. That link is in the show notes. After the break, we hear from pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca about why it is taking the US government to court over the new rules. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before the break, we heard how the Inflation Reduction Act would impact both drug takers who will benefit from cheaper medicines and lower medical bills, and drug makers, who don't like a lot of what the new rules prescribe. To find out why they're so unhappy, I spoke to Dave Fredrickson, who leads the oncology division of pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca. Dave, it's a pleasure to have you on Money Talks today. Tom, it's wonderful to be with you. Thank you for having me. Dave, to start, I wanted to understand your perspective on what the impact of the IRA is likely to be in terms of drug development in the pharmaceutical industry. The Inflation Reduction Act has a number of core elements, particularly in the way in which the rulemaking has been written, that we think creates some very serious disincentives to development of medicines in cancers and in rare diseases. Under the Inflation Reduction Act, there is a so-called price negotiation element. And here's how price negotiation works. Assuming that a medicine is not exempt from negotiation, starting from the day that a medicine is approved by FDA, a clock starts and that clock begins and ends at nine years for small molecules and at 13 years for large molecules. And after either that nine or 13 years, the price setting mechanism is brought into place and negotiation is being allowed at that point in time. 
I think the important things to note about negotiation within this, Tom, is that negotiation is not actually a negotiation between two parties who come to and agree upon a price. The price is set, and it is really a take-it-or-leave-it proposition where the consequences for deciding not to accept the price that has been offered by the government are really to either remove all medicines out of Medicare or to pay an excise tax that's upward of 95%. So really, this negotiation clock period is a period of time during which market-based pricing is the way in which a value of a medicine is determined. And talking specifically about AstraZeneca, have you already made plans to adjust your pipeline of drug development in response to the new rules? At AstraZeneca, we are already taking into consideration a number of different implications related to the Inflation Reduction Act. The first of them is that we did consider at great length whether or not we thought a legal challenge was something that was the right course of action, and we did decide to take and put forth a legal challenge to the Inflation Reduction Act. We are also evaluating already how we think about the launch sequence and the way in which we approach investments into research and development. I mean, I think that this takes on two different dimensions to it. One of them is that now the Inflation Reduction Act, because of price setting and because of a limited period of time where market-based pricing is used to determine the value of our medicines, the sequence with which we will launch indications into the U.S. might look different than the sequence in other parts of the globe. So that actually means that there are certain innovations that they'll come to the United States, but they may come to the United States after they come to another part of the globe where there isn't a disincentive to bring into smaller populations earlier. And then the second component is is that there are also very different sets of incentives around small molecules within the price setting mechanism versus large molecules. And so we are still very much committed to small molecule development, but as a relative percent of the allocation of our resources, small molecules are something that we see as being, over time, probably an area that will spend less of our investment dollars, which are scarce against than some of the larger molecules, which have better incentives as it relates to price setting. I suppose putting aside what we talked about around issues around the timing provisions and issues around small molecules versus biologics, are you in principle opposed to the government being able to negotiate directly for drug prices through Medicare? We are always putting at the core of what we do our focus on patients. And our unique value proposition that we're able to offer to patients is really accelerating pioneering science and translating that into great medicines for patients. And then also really a lot of work that we do to encourage really redefining the way in which treatment is being delivered by focusing in on diagnosis, delivery of precision medicine, adherence to medicines and staying on therapies. All of that work really is predicated on our being able to realize the value of our medicines during a period of time that we've got 
our earned IP protection. But if you were selling those medicines through the NHS in Britain, for example, would you be negotiating on price even during the period where there is IP protection? Well, I think it's important to recognize that all multinational companies are making decisions around what research and development investments we want to make and where we ensure we are putting our prioritized efforts to then launch those innovations across the globe. And the United States has historically been an outstanding place for the incentives that are created to bring innovations to patients, particularly those with rare diseases, those with cancers, and the progress that we've made in the United States in terms of lowering mortality rates has been world-leading. And so if we take an example like you just stated with the NHS, I think that the consequence of the NHS approach is that the pace with which innovations, particularly in the cancer space, make it to the UK patient is slower than the pace with which we see those medicines coming to the American or the US cancer patient. And so the US market seems to spur a lot of innovation around medicine development, but it does seem difficult to escape this fact that the share of GDP that's spent on healthcare in America is something like double what it is in other countries. And at least from what I can see in the aggregate statistics, without any meaningfully better health outcomes to show for it, And I guess there is an argument here that high drug prices are a contributor to that. So I suppose I'd just be interested to hear your perspective on what you think should change in the American healthcare system if you don't think the IRA is the right solution. I think that the big focus that we as a company have had across the globe, particularly as it relates to cancer, but frankly, this is true also when we think about cardiovascular disease, rare diseases, respiratory diseases, early detection, early treatment, where prognosis is best and the opportunity to deliver the best possible outcomes for patients is highest. That is really an important place that we think focus needs to be placed upon. I think that all countries really benefit from efforts that are focused in on creating incentives to identify patients early, to make sure that there's access to precision medicine and precision diagnostics, which allow the tailoring of treatments to ensure that the right patient gets the right medicine at the right time. I also think just to put into context your point about percent of GDP that's spent within the United States relative to other countries I think also needs to be put in the context that drugs as a percent of the total healthcare spend represent estimated between 15 and 18% of that total spend. So I do really think that while, of course, affordability of medicines is absolutely something that is important for patients, I think that efforts to try to get healthcare spending to be reduced really do need to focus on much more than simply just medicines. Dave, thank you so much for joining us on Money Talks. Tom, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. I'm back now with The Economist's Shailesh Chitnis. Shailesh, thanks for sticking around. Thank you. So what do you make of what you've heard today? 
A few thoughts that I had. So the first is, at least in the near term, the impact of the IRA is going to be fairly limited because of the slow nature of the rollout. The program starts only in 2026, and even then it's the first 10 drugs. And so there's a very gradual rollout. But the areas that we are already starting to see an impact is the really early stage small molecule drug companies. I think they are starting to feel a lot of the pressure already. I think the other part is also very valid, which is the whole notion around price negotiation versus price setting. I think the objections of the drug companies are pretty valid when you start to look at the penalties that are imposed here. So that is a very real concern in the sense that any kind of negotiation should have a natural give and take so that both parties feel they've arrived at a decent number. In this case, the provisions and the penalties don't really make for that. The second part is also a little bit of a fear that maybe we have gone from one extreme where Medicare was barred from negotiating with drug companies to almost the other extreme where drug companies are in essential going to be taking prices from the government. And the fear is that if you push too hard and you set prices low, that could have an impact in terms of the R&D for a lot of these companies. And finally, it's not just a US story because whatever happens here also impacts the kind of drugs that are brought to bear for the rest of the world. And so that's the reason I think this has much broader implications than just what is going on in the US. And so how do you think the law could be tweaked, changed, amended to better balance some of these competing dimensions or priorities? Yeah, I think the first thing that needs to happen is uh, the harsh penalties for not accepting the price that has been recommended or set by the government. I think that needs to be a lot more reasonable. The second is the distinction between small molecules and large molecules. I think that needs to go away because that's really a scientific decision about which kind of modality you want to have your drug in. Is a small molecule the right form factor or is it best developed as an injectable that goes directly into the bloodstream. That is a decision that is more for the scientists than based on Excel spreadsheets. So I think both these provisions, if they are modified, that would go a long way. I don't think that anybody objects to the fact that the government should negotiate with the drug companies as such a large buyer. I think the fact that they could never do it before was itself an anomaly which needed to be fixed. But I think the provisions need to be a lot more fairer. Shailesh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Mike, are you any less baffled by the US healthcare system now? Well, I certainly feel like I understand a bit more about this particular issue now. Yeah, it's really interesting because the fiscal pressure is something that you see basically everywhere in the world. You know, there's not that many rich countries that don't have an aging population that are going to need significantly greater healthcare expenditure in the coming years and decades. But what seems to set America apart is that there's this tug of war about innovation and costs and equality. And it's a really fascinating time to be thinking about that, given the last few years we've had COVID vaccinations, the GLP-type drugs for weight loss, got a range of new drugs coming out at the moment related to blood cancers. 
And a lot of the rest of the world just sort of plays the role of the secondary market here. And the US is so much, much more important when it comes to the actual model of funding the companies, really. The fact that America is about 40 to 45% of the global outlay on prescription drugs when US GDP isn't anything like 40 to 45%. It's certainly not anything like 40 to 45% of the population of the world. But if you contrast that to sort of the British system or, or anywhere else, really, you're really affecting the entire business model of the companies when you decide on pricing policies from an American perspective. Whereas if you think of discussions about NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence in the UK, which is the regulator that discusses what sort of medicines and treatments the NHS can offer, that's mostly just a conversation about cost, about what they can afford and the merits on that front of purchasing a given treatment. It's not so much about the other side of things, whether you're reducing innovation too. So that element of it is really unique to the US and really interesting. And it makes me sort of see why a lot of Americans feel like they're subsidizing research and development in the medical industry for the, the whole of the rest of the world. One thing I was really struck by was the point that Dave mentioned around drugs only representing around 15 to 18% of healthcare costs in America, which is substantial, but it clearly implies that the high cost of healthcare in America has a number of other underlying causes. A few possibilities that come to mind are the fact that healthcare delivery in many areas is very concentrated with one hospital, often a private company serving a local population. The system also involves this bizarre number of middlemen, from insurers to pharmaceutical benefit managers to physician networks, all of which add their own margins. And it's not entirely clear to me why the value chain needs to be so fragmented. It certainly isn't that way in other countries. And actually, I think that fragmentation may be one reason that the market has been so difficult to disrupt. Even Amazon, which is in some respects, the champion of upending markets has really struggled to make headway as a healthcare company. For example, if you want to start offering medical services directly to patients, either online or through physical clinics, as Amazon's trying to do, you then have to go and negotiate with all these different insurers to get coverage and with drug distributors to get access to medicine. So it feels like it's just become this tangled mess that's very difficult to unravel and very expensive. Although it does seem to me that there is still a massive opportunity here for a company that can crack it. Yeah, that point on the middlemen is a great one. And I presume that the idea of sort of targeting those intermediaries, there's presumably somewhat less innovation going on in the intermediary uh, pharmaceutical sales industry might be a better place to focus. Well, unfortunately, further unpacking the American healthcare mess will have to wait for another episode as it's time now for us to turn to our stats of the week. Mike, what have you got for us? So my statistic of the week is 49 billion US dollars. And I suppose it's a negative 49 billion US dollars because it represents the capital outflow from China's capital account last month in August, which is the largest figure since December 2015, which rather hints, as we've mentioned on the show recently, that not all is entirely well in the Chinese economy at the moment. It's probably a little bit early to start talking seriously about capital flight, but people who remember sort of 2014 to 16 was not always a great time for the Chinese economy, and there were lots of worries about capital flight back then. 
Yeah, it's something that the Chinese government will be paying very close attention to because it affects their ability to do all sorts of things like maintain the value of the yuan, preventing people from getting money out if they're a little bit panicked is a uh, big area of focus for Chinese policymakers. Well, more bad news from the Chinese economy. To counterbalance that, I have some good news for my stat of the week. and My stat is 25%, which is how much the share price of ARM, which is a British chipmaker, rose on the first day of its trading after its IPO last week. In the days since then, it has lost some of those gains, but really by all accounts, the IPO was a great success, certainly for its owner, SoftBank, which owns about 90% of the company still. Uh, There were plenty of naysayers who thought that ARM would never secure anything close to the IPO valuation that SoftBank was hoping for, but it did, plus some more after trading opened. And lots of bankers, as well as venture capital firms and companies who are planning IPOs were really eagerly watching this listing to see how it would perform and whether it could break this kind of dry spell that the IPO market has been in for many months now. And so I'm sure they're feeling very optimistic after the result. Yeah, not just good news for the IPO market as well, but SoftBank. I don't think Masayoshi Son's big list of recent successes is actually particularly long. They've had a very, very difficult (laughs) couple of years with the sort of general winter in, in the venture capital. Well, with that, I'd like to thank Trisha Newman and Dave Fredrickson. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Don't forget to subscribe to Economist Podcasts Plus. There's more info in the show notes along with a link to sign up for that special offer. And you can always write to us at podcasts at economist.com. Today's show was produced by Dan Asher and Marie Keyworth. Our sound engineer is Ting Lee Lim. And the executive producer is Marguerite Howell. I'm Tom Lee Devlin. I'm Mike Bird. And this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.